Greetings, Trinitrons. You're streaming Trinity Radio, a podcast where we deep dive goth and electronic music subcultures. I am DJ Cheshireen, and this is episode 12, Long Division. Today, we're talking all about the breakups, makeups, and legacies of music icons. Of course, we have music. You'll hear from some familiar favorites like New Order and Joy Division. We have some music history, and we have an interview with the world's biggest Love and Rockets fan, DJ Kari of San Diego. You're listening to Trinity Radio. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. What do you think of this statement? When something is present in our lives continuously, we may take it for granted. It's the absence or the prospect of losing something that can sometimes heighten our awareness of its value and significance. Humans are a creature of habit. We tend to become accustomed to routine and familiarity. I, for example, am talking to you right now before I clock into my nine to five job for the day. And you, maybe you're in the car or on your way somewhere, maybe you're at your desk or doing something part of your lovely daily routine. Until one day, this routine, this thing, whatever thing we're devoting ourselves so much to eventually just stops. The emotional impact of change, loss, or even the anticipation of an end can evoke a range of feelings. Nostalgia, regret, or heightened appreciation. The realization that something is finite can intensify our emotional connection to it. In the words of Robert Smith from The Cure, we know how the end always is. In the music industry, a legacy refers to the impact, contributions, and influence that an artist or group leaves behind as the result of their actions or existence. Music legends might be known for their innovations or their genre-defining work. They may shape trends and attitudes and lifestyles Perhaps they're known for their philanthropy work like Cindy Lauper and her charities for queer and women's rights. Maybe they're symbols associated with a particular era like Spice Girls and 90s Britannia. Or maybe they earn a ton of critical acclaim like Grammys or inductions into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Legends might also have memorable performances like Michael Jackson's Thriller or his Moonwalk. They maintain relevance over time and continue to attract new generations of fans. And most of all, legends contribute to the evolving landscape of music. But music legends are not perfect people. Thoughts and memories about them can be both positive and negative. In either case, these artists play a crucial role in shaping the collective memory and identity of the individuals and communities who are a fan of their music. Legacies generally refer to something handed down from the past. So legacies really take hold after an artist's work comes to an end. And music projects come to an end for various reasons. There could be personality conflicts and ego clashes. Maybe there's some creative differences and the members can't agree anymore. There could be disagreement with management. Perhaps the label wants to go one direction while the artist wants to go another. There could be financial strains. There could also be lack of success and burnout and frustration. There could be health problems, substance abuse, and personal issues or death. And this brings us to our first featured artist. Joy Division was an English rock band formed in 1976. The group consisted of vocalist Ian Curtis, guitarist and keyboardist Bernard Sumner, bassist Peter Hook, and drummer Stephen Morris. The project started when childhood friends Bernard and Peter met in Manchester, England. The two of them were early punk obsessives. They would go to shows together. There wasn't really much to do in Manchester. Um, we kind of know about the soccer team, but not any other exports aside from some awesome music. So they were especially inspired by misfits like the Sex Pistols for destroying the pop star ethos that Musicians were gods that needed to be worshipped. So here you have Bernard who could play guitar and Peter who could play the bass. Two friends with similar values and similar taste in music. So they thought, well, if we just have a couple more players, we can have our own band. So Peter and Bernard posted an ad in the Manchester Virgin Records shop that read, Band Seeks Singer. In response to the ad, they got a lot of crappy auditions. They got some prank phone calls, like so-so singers, Hippies recited poetry and people who just had like the wrong vibe all together. And then one day they received a phone call from a man named Ian Curtis. Before the ad was posted, Ian had actually met Bernard and Peter previously at some local punk gigs. So having been introduced in the past, Bernard and Peter hired Ian without an audition. With his frenetic stage presence and talent for songwriting, Ian emerged as the group's frontman. By 1977, Joy Division had a full lineup, Bernard Sumner on the guitar, Peter Hook on bass, Stephen Morris on drums, and Ian Curtis doing vocals. 
these men had pretty pedestrian jobs outside of the band, like the kind of like, what am I doing here jobs. Um, I believe Ian was a civil servant. Like many of us, they were just working to pay the bills, make ends meet. So Joy Division was their creative outlet. It was also a way to spend time together. Ian was the band's sole lyricist. His imagery often referenced coldness, pressure, darkness, crisis, failure, collapse, and loss of control. These, these are kind of the tenets of goth lyrics, usually. Um, the musical parts were largely written by Sumner and Hook as the groups jammed during rehearsals. So kind of just improvise on the flow. Together, they made melodic bass lines, slow and brooding, simple yet very like jagged guitar riffs. Um, they had this distinct low baritone voice from Ian in this kind of like hollow drumming style that sounds like really skittish. Um, and these were their sort of signature sounds. It wasn't punk music, um, but it was certainly inspired by punk energy. In the four years together, Joy Division produced two studio albums, Unknown Pleasures and Closer. They appeared on TV, BBC Radio, and had a very successful European tour. Things were going really great at first, especially considering this wasn't even their full-time job. But Ian Curtis struggled with epilepsy. Epilepsy is a brain disorder that causes recurring, unprovoked seizures. Due to the pressure of succeeding as a band, the long working hours, the stress, and lack of sleep, Ian's epilepsy worsened. The condition got to a point where Ian would have seizures on stage in the middle of performances. He had shown signs of depression and attempted to take his own life by overdosing on his medication. And this was not a secret. Joy Division members knew that Ian wasn't well, but nonetheless, they continued on, um, citing that they didn't really know the severity of his condition. After they finished their European tour, they were moving on to their biggest accomplishment yet, a North American tour and a second album on the way. But on May 18th, 1980, just before Joy Division was to embark on their U.S. tour, Ian took his own life, and Joy Division's time came to a sudden and tragic end. Our first featured song today is called Heart and Soul. The lyrics discuss the dichotomy of instinct, reason, emotion, and logic. This is Joy Division's Heart and Soul on Trinity Radio.
That was Heart and Soul by Joy Division. I chose to play Heart and Soul for you for a few reasons. To start, the lyrical content in this song really captures a lot of the poetic themes that Joy Division references, like existentialism, heartbreak, sorrow, um, and it's actually pretty easy to discern what Ian Curtis is singing in this piece. The second reason that I chose to play this song is because I feel like all of the individual parts and all of the individual members shine equally in this song. The track begins with Peter Hook's melodic bass line. You have this hollow, skittering drum rhythm from Stephen Morris and Bernard Sumner playing this really cold, repetitive two-chord progression. Heart and Soul is from Joy Division's second and final album, Closer. Looking in hindsight, when we listen to these lyrics, it does sound like Ian truly felt everything that he was writing about and singing about. Though his death was accidental in some ways, he seemed to really underscore his writing with his entire life. Initially, their first album, Unknown Pleasures, didn't make any albums chart in the UK. However, in May 1980, after Ian Curtis's suicide and the release of Closer, Unknown Pleasures was reissued and did end up charting. So retrospectively, Unknown Pleasures and Closer have become crown jewels of post-punk music. Unknown Pleasures especially sustained recognition for being one of the most influential albums ever, and Joy Division became recognized as the original species of what would later become known as post-punk and goth. I'd like to interject and really emphasize now that Joy Division's success is not attributed solely to Ian Curtis's death. Um, it should not be thought that his work became more legitimate because of his suicide. Um, in the end, it was a tragedy for everyone involved, and the band regrets turning a blind eye for not taking his health more seriously. The increased interest in music after the death of an artist or musician can be attributed to several factors. For one thing, there was very limited availability of unknown pleasures copies. In the beginning, only about 10,000 copies were made, and these weren't the days of streaming. The only way to hear the music was to get lucky and hear it on the radio, which Joy Division was too hip and indie for, or to physically own the copy. Secondly, the passing of Ian Curtis led to a critical evaluation of his work. Critics and listeners analyzed and abbreviated the artist's contribution more deeply, recognizing the integrity of his music. So for those who could relate, the death of Ian Curtis also evoked a desire to connect with his music and his writing as a way of processing the grief, including for the band's remaining members. Ian's untimely and tragic suicide brought an end to Joy Division. But from the ashes rose a new group, New Order. New Order began in 1980 with three of the four members, bassist Peter Hook, drummer Stephen Morris, and guitarist Bernard Sumner. The band knew that they could not continue as Joy Division, but wasted no time moving on anyways, because as mentioned before, they made Joy Division because they loved music, and it was their creative outlet. It was a way to live their fullest life. In the 1993 documentary New Order Story, the remaining members talk about why and how they decided to continue on without Ian. I think maybe they came into being despite someone's suicide. I think that was the point. I mean, it's not as if you did it, you know, because Ian killed himself. You did it because you wanted to carry on because you were enjoying what you did. I mean, it was just like, it was like somebody had snatched the prize off you after you'd won it, you know, and you thought, right, you know, we're gonna go all out and get it back. If we got another singer in it, it'd be like Joy Division 2, really, and whoever you got in, would be under a lot of pressure and be like comparisons with Ian and stuff like that. That, that we definitely knew we weren't going to do. So, um, let's have the singer sweepstake, um, which um, Bernard threw the short straw on. Well, I didn't, I didn't view it as um, as being difficult to take over from Ian, um, because I considered it an honour, really. New Order rehearsed with each member taking turns on vocals. Sumner ultimately took the role as he could sing when he wasn't playing his guitar. The band, well established, wanted to complete their lineup with someone they knew well and someone whose musical skill and style was compatible with their own. That year, the group hired Stephen Morse's partner, Gillian Gilbert, as their new keyboardist and guitarist. She would become a long-term member in the band. New Order triumphed over tragedy to emerge as one of the most influential and acclaimed bands of all time. And they're still active and thriving today. When they started in 1980, their first performances were overshadowed by the legacy of Joy Division. This was partly because the first 
couple of New Order songs were these two singles that were written by Ian Curtis before his suicide. So you could say that technically they were Joy Division songs that were performed without Ian. But in 1981, so just one year later, New Order released their first album, Movement. Movement is the bridge between Joy Division to New Order. And it makes sense that there would be similarities, right? I mean, three of the members are still the same. You have one new member on guitar and keyboard, um, but some differences as well. The vocalist is gone, and you're also taking it from a more like punk-inspired sound to something a little bit more synth-driven. So from top to bottom, movement has these dark, simple melodies, and you can tell as you progress through the album that change is taking place in this musical progress. By the second album, most of the 80s takes over and New Order's taking on a lot of the new technology that was coming out during the time, thus going toward a more electronic, synth-driven sound. This next song is called Your Silent Face. It's from New Order's second album, Power, Corruption, and Lies, released in 1983. So this album was the synthesizer-based outing and dramatic change in sound from Joy Division and the preceding New Order album. This is Your Silent Face on Trinity Radio.
You just heard New Order, Your Silent Face. What I appreciate about Power, Corruption, and Lies in songs like Your Silent Face is that there is a very apparent hybrid influence for New Order. You can tell that there's this post-punk background while also trying to embrace some of the futuristic synthesizer sounds. It's very precise and structured, like computer music tends to be, but the synth leads are so lush and melodic, so it feels like not overproduced. It's more of a landscape. And then there's still a little bit of like dynamic looseness to it because the album is still rooted in rock and it exists almost exactly between Joy Division's post-punk sound and the synth pop style that would later define New Order and influence pop music for decades. So to shake off some of their old Joy Division reputation, New Order had to travel around, work with different producers and get new influences in order to expand their skill set and their taste. Remember that tour they were supposed to go on to the United States and never happened? Well, now they're doing it. Starting with New York City. In New York, New Order sought the American record producer, Arthur Baker, who was known for working on soul, disco, and hip-hop artists. So he co-wrote the song Confusion, which became a crossover hit in the U.S. dance charts, and that was also a hit in the U.K. for New Order. This relationship ushered New Order's sound into post-disco, freestyle, and electro music. Some singles to follow were Temptation and their 1983 hit Blue Monday, which became the best-selling 12-inch record of all time. Fast forward 40 years later. Today, New Order has 10 studio albums and dozens of EPs, compilations, and singles. Despite 75% similarity in band members between Joy Division and New Order, everyone pretty much unanimously agrees that these are two very distinct bands performing in two distinct styles and two distinct eras. Joy Division is appreciated for their dark poetry, their grunginess and dynamic, like erratic energy. New Order is better known for their synth-driven, electronic precision, colorful artwork, and their polish. Some goth and post-punk elitists might turn their nose to New Order, saying that it's more like pop music, Kraftworkian style, as opposed to dark music. But why should they stay bleak? New Order arose from a tragedy. But in this interview with Bernard Sumner, He states how, in some ways, he wants to thank Ian Curtis for introducing this pop sensibility that would become the New Order sound. The change didn't just come with New York. It came from the influences. Blue Money was influenced by Sylvester, by Kraftwerk. I remember Ian, even in the days of Joy Division, Ian used to bring Kraftwerk records to rehearsals and play them and said, listen to this, it's something new. You know, it's something fantastic. We used to play Kraftwerk before right on stage as Joy Division. So the synthesizer influence came from that, really. I guess it came from Ian. Maybe he knew, and maybe he was showing us the way on. Who knows? Trinity Radio. Our next featured artist is the poster child for on-again and off-again relationships. Bauhaus was an English gothic rock band originally formed by Daniel Ash, David J, and Kevin Haskins. The three go way back. David J and Kevin are actually brothers, and Daniel Ash is a childhood friend. The three of them covered vocals, guitar, bass, and drums. And they played together in bands that covered Rolling Stones music, the Beatles, like classic rock type of stuff. Daniel Ash invited his school friend Peter Murphy to join the band because he had the look. But Peter had never written lyrics or music before, and he'd never been in a band. So Peter turned down these invitations a few times, but eventually he gave in. So in 1978, Peter Murphy joined the trio, and the four of them formed Bauhaus. Sonically, the band took influence from Joy Division, Devo, Gang of Four, Cabaret Voltaire. And in the first six weeks of forming, Bauhaus released their first debut single, Bella Lugosi's Dead. All four band members were credited as writers. You have Peter Murphy as the vocalist, Daniel Ash the guitarist, Kevin Haskins as the drummer, and David Jay as the bassist. Bella Lugosi's Dead is considered the harbinger of rock music and has been immensely influential in contemporary goth culture. Lyrics of Bella Lugosi's Dead illustrate the funeral of the Dracula actor, Bella Lugosi, with bats swooping, virgin brides watching past his coffin. It added this like bleak imagery that romanticized vampires and horror and created this allure around darkness, which, like Joy Division's dark lyrics, some of this imagery also makes the pillars of goth culture. 
and the band persisted through some hardships. Um, I mentioned earlier how one of the reasons a band may break up is due to financial constraints or issues with their management. But Bauhaus stayed on the charts through some changes. Um, BBC Radio 1 was jammed with listeners wanting to hear that song over and over again. Yet their small indie label didn't have the funds to send Bauhaus on tour to promote them more. So Bauhaus moved from their first small little indie label to a bigger label called 4AD. And that's when they issued their first album in the flat field. Big music critics really did not like in the flat field, but um, indie charts, yes, it did well with the indie charts. And for the second time, the band's label, 4AD, didn't have the resources to support Bauhaus's growth. So the band moved to a third label, 4AD's parent label called Beggar's Banquet Records. So here the band is actually going through some change, staying together. Um, finally, they could really take root and grow. And between 1981 and 1983, Bauhaus released three studio albums and then came to a screeching halt. What went wrong? I'll tell you. But first, let's tip our hats to this great band, Bauhaus. This is Dark Entries on Trinity Radio. You just heard Dark Entries by Bauhaus. It's an absolute banger. Dark Entry starts with some shrill feedback and showcases the guitar playing of Daniel Ash. It's got a storm of like these tight, steady, galloping drums and bass between Kevin and David J. 
And then you have Peter Murphy's chaotic yet controlled wails. Um, in this song, he also demonstrates, in my opinion, his vocal range. It's really exciting. It's really fast. It gets you going. Um, I also appreciate the group's collective chant, Dark Entries. It's, uh, it shows good teamwork, in my opinion. Throughout their brief career, Bauhaus created a minimal, cold, and bleak style of post-punk rock. While their following has never really expanded beyond a cult, Bauhaus retrospectively became recognized as the founding fathers of gothic rock. That's because these four spearheaded something that other dark alternative bands weren't quite doing yet in 1980, um, and they were flooring it. So between 1980 and 1983, the band had enough creative energy to put out four albums in like four years. That's crazy. They survived a couple of label changes. So what went wrong? In divorce lingo, what went wrong is called irreconcilable differences. In other words, the members of the band just couldn't work past their differences and personal issues in order to make a creative relationship work. But the long story. As I mentioned before, Daniel Ash, David J, and Kevin Haskins were childhood friends who had played together nicely for years. They have artistic chemistry, good balanced relationships. Peter joins later, and he is incredibly charismatic, he's electrifying, he has amazing pipes. From a stage performance standpoint, Peter really shines, and oftentimes the nature of stage shows has the vocalist front and center. So you've got the band getting all these spots on the radio and commercials and movies, um, but a disproportionate amount of camera time and credit is going toward the frontman, Peter Murphy. Behind the scenes though, when in the studio, Everyone is on level ground. No one band member is on a pedestal. And Peter Murphy didn't play any instruments or have any songwriting experience. So the bulk of the songwriting duties fall to Daniel Ash, David J, and also to Kevin Haskins. But these people aren't getting the credit that's due really, right? So what happens when three of the four members of a band are doing the heavy lifting, but fall in the shadows of their frontman? Here come the final days. In 1982, Bauhaus's label wanted to release a fourth album. During the recording of the fourth album, singer Peter Murphy contracted viral pneumonia, leaving the rest of the band to undertake much of the writing and recording process without him. And in the process, Daniel Ash, David J, and Kevin learned that they could create with a lot more ease and more chemistry without Peter. The three guys wrote several numbers. As evidence of how much input the rest of the band had on the album, bassist David J and guitarist Daniel Ash were able to sing lead vocals on four of the songs. This, combined with the fact that the band started recording without Peter, led to contention when he came back. And by the time the album was released, the band had already broken up. After Bauhaus disbanded, the members of the band moved on to various works. Peter Murphy went on to new projects that did not involve anyone else. He was not having it. So he auditioned for a lot of roles, acting roles, um, including the 1984 box office hit Tarzan. And yes, he auditioned for the role of Tarzan. Uh, but Peter Murphy had an insecurity because he spoke with a stammer, and this made him very self-conscious about working in TV acting roles or radio roles in film. Um, but he was really good at singing, and he even had a few false starts there, because by 1983, bands like The Cure and Depeche Mode were blowing up, and goth wasn't so obscure anymore. So, at first it was hard for Peter Murphy to establish himself as a solo artist. Nonetheless, he still wants nothing to do with the three others. Daniel Ash had already established his post-punk side project, turned serious project, called Tones on Tail. And he was already a very prolific writer. So drummer Kevin Haskins joined Daniel Ash to work on Tones on Tail for a bit. Now, no one's really like doing anything huge by this point. So the trio, Daniel, David, and Kevin, suggest that Bauhaus reforms. But Peter was like, nope, we're not <laughs> doing this. So the three were like, okay, well, we're going to do it without you. And in 1985, the remaining three, Daniel Ash, David J, and Kevin Haskins, combined forces to join our next featured band, Love and Rockets. Initially, Love and Rockets was seen as the Bauhaus leftovers. I mean, after all, three of the four members of Bauhaus were in Love and Rockets. But Love and Rockets had a very distinct style of their own. In sound, they were creating a fusion of underground music, psychedelic rock with elements of pop. They emphasized the strains of psychedelic and glam that were under Bauhaus's gloomy sound because you know, David J. and Daniel Ash were doing a lot of the songwriting as well. And in fashion, they wore white and fun patterns. They continued to play post-punk but introduced more elevated emotion to it. So in just two short years, Love and Rocket started to shake the goth genre and the bassist, guitarist, and drummer eclipsed their former frontmen. 
from their 1986 album Express. This is Love and Rockets Holiday on the Moon on Trinity Radio. We just heard Holiday on the Moon by Love and Rockets. So Holiday on the Moon is very rich in detail. It starts minimally, then ascends into a sort of like hypnotic, 
dynamic neo psychedelic experience almost feels like being flung into space. Express is categorized as post-punk, but you start to hear inspiration from like new wave elements, psychedelic, both in sound and in lyrical content as well. So as mentioned before, by this point, the trio, Daniel Ash, David J and Kevin have done a really good job at shaking off their goth reputation that they built for themselves with Bauhaus. Now they're sort of this alternative rock, pop, psychedelic kind of band. It might not seem like much to do another genre of rock, but for some perspective, to have a career where you're pigeonholed as the godfathers of goth and to be able to reinvent yourself in just a few years time really was a testament to how skilled they were as musicians because they could play such a variety of sounds. The band scored an unexpected worldwide hit with their song So Alive from their 1989 self-titled fourth album. The group would go on to release a total of seven studio albums until they disbanded in 1999. Around the same time, near the end of Love and Rockets, Bauhaus briefly reunited for the Resurrection Tour in 1998. Following a mid-2000s tour, Love and Rockets reunited several times, and they called it quits. In 2008, Bauhaus reunited again to record another studio album together, um, and then called it quits again. And I can't really keep count at this point how many times they broke up and reunited, whether it was to write or to tour. And perhaps in future, these members may all reunite again. Only time will tell. To help me reflect on these music legends, I'm using a lifeline today, calling on a key player on my DJ roster. Please welcome our special guest, DJ Kari. Kari is a San Diego-based DJ specializing in dark electronic, goth, industrial, future pop, and dark wave music. Kari has a monthly residency at Club Ascension San Diego. It is our local goth, industrial, and ethereal night. Kari is also an avid vinyl collector, and she is a huge fan of anything Daniel Ash. I know you're a huge like Daniel Ash fan and Love and Rockets fan. And the, the reason I know this is I've DJed with you a number of times at Club Ascension. And before I was even a DJ, I recall being at the Kava Lounge and uh, you DJed there, used your laptop and you had a Love and Rockets sleeve. And that makes a statement, I think. So um, I also read one of your DJ bios Kari is a fan of Love and Rockets and anything Daniel Ash. And I thought, perfect. Here's someone I've worked with. I admire her work. I bet she knows a lot about this topic. So I'm in your home. You have, I don't want to spoil it for everyone, but like original artwork by some of the artists we're discussing today. So that's why I chose you, Miss Kari. Can you please just tell us more from, from your point of view, your experience as a musician and a DJ? Well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor. As to my DJ career, that started uh, back when Sabbat was at the Flame, and my friend Adam invited me to basically just shadow him in the back room at the Flame. And so uh, it was all just playing CDs back then. So I grabbed a bunch of CDs, and it was so exciting. I got to uh, play in the back room at Sabbat. Shortly after that, Robin invited me to guest DJ at Ascension. And after not too much time, turned into a residency. And of course, that's where I uh, still DJ monthly. And yes, my background with becoming a musician actually started when I was eight. I was visiting my friend and she was going to Yamaha class and I went along with her. And Yamaha class, at least back in the day, what it was for was to help kids learn to read music and learn to play basic keys. But in my opinion, most importantly, ear training. And so I was really taken to the class and I ran home and I asked my parents if I could go to Yamaha class and they enrolled me. And I just absolutely loved it. And so my biggest takeaway from all of that was the ear training. So I can sort of play keyboards, I can definitely read music, but the ear training was really what that was all about for me. Ear training, can you tell us more like what is that exactly? Well, we really focused on how can you tell if something is just out of tune a little bit, is it slightly sharp, is it slightly flat? And mm. also just recognizing various chords, various chord progressions. So in Yamaha class, a lot of communication was done with music and not with words. So there was certain chord progressions that meant, okay, everyone come sit on the floor, or um, this is the song that we're about to sing before we leave. It, it, there was just a lot of 
musical indicators and um, really just being able to tell if something was a major or a minor and a lot of focus on the even the feelings that that would bring about. So this is really fascinating and it makes me even more happy <laughs> that I chose you as a guest. Okay, so we're talking about artists who are in bands that maybe have split up or have done side projects with one or more of the, the same members. And where I can find ear training to be especially helpful there is you can hear like like little nuances in what defines like song and music. That's really fascinating because if you take a band like Bauhaus, which is like four members and three of them go away, how does that sound different? You have three people who play the same instruments, but they're going to play it in a different way. And I think given your background and just how you're an audiophile, you can like tell what those nuances are. And we'll talk more about that. Um, but the first question is, how did you get introduced to those bands? So you can talk about Joy Division, New Order, or Bauhaus, wherever, wherever you want to begin. Well, my first introduction to Bauhaus, I didn't realize it at the time, but it would have been 1983's uh, Tony Scott's movie, The Hunger. And there was this really amazing image, and it was Bauhaus, and it was primarily Peter Murphy, but there were other glimpses to the rest of the band. But what really struck me, not only was it the music that was going along with the imagery, but just the whole aesthetic, it made me feel a certain way. And uh, it's really stuck with me throughout then, through, throughout this whole time. Uh, it really helped the feeling, the dark aesthetic kind of resonate with me. And it was hard to really put words around it, but there was just this feeling that that created. And that was Bauhaus. And you know, what's interesting is by the time any of us saw that movie, Bauhaus had already broken up. You know, their initial time together was not very long, but many of us really got to know Bauhaus after that. And it was just such an amazing experience seeing that movie. And I have a funny little comment on that, too. In the credits, in the ending credits, Bauhaus was not referred to as Bauhaus. They were referred to as the disco group. I thought that was hilarious. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's really funny. So funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Disco group, yeah. <laughs> the disco group. Okay, so from The Hunger. And then were you listening to Joy Division when they were still Joy Division or after the fact? I listened to them only just a little bit. I really got into New Order. New Order was very important to me. And I listened to them probably quite a bit more than Joy Division. And Quite honestly, I listen to Love and Rockets a lot more than Bauhaus. Mm -hmm. I love all of these bands, but they're also very different. Mm -hmm. But I think that in the case of Joy Division and the New Order, and then also Bauhaus into um, Love and Rockets, Peter Murphy solo, mm -hmm. Daniel Ash solo, all of the, the later iterations, everyone had um, refined their music mm -hmm. ability. They had become better musicians. In the case of Peter Murphy, I think especially his ability to just write incredible lyrics, mm -hmm. he really became an amazing lyricist mm -hmm. later on. So as important as the original forms of these bands were, I really enjoyed watching the, the growth. And the other thing, too, that I think struck me as maybe perhaps why I preferred some of the later iterations was the production. I'm a sucker for really good production and really tight production. Mm -hmm. And that comes through in some of these later iterations of these bands. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I'm hearing is you have an appreciation for Joy Division and Bauhaus, but you are more fond of the offshoots. So New Order, Love and Rockets, Tones on Tail, Daniel Ash, and Peter Murphy solo. For sure. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter Murphy went on solo to become Peter Murphy himself, whereas... Uh, David J, Daniel Ash, they went on not using their names. Right? They went on as Love and Rockets. And this reminds me of a quote I came across where David J, he was referring to how when they were Bauhaus, he felt like Peter Murphy was always in the spotlight and was um, referenced as sort of the spokesperson for the band. And as you mentioned in The Hunger, he was the main person featured. Everyone else was kind of in the background. So David J once said, it's the old hierarchy that's imposed by the press. The first person they'll go to is the singer, next is the guitarist, the bass player, then the drummer. 
Do you agree with this statement that when it comes to bands, like we'll always recognize the front men? And if so, why do you think that is? And if not, then can you give me some examples of, of cases where like the front person was kind of just equal as the other members? Yes, so regarding David J's statement, uh, that may be true to a certain degree, but I don't really buy into it with regards to Bauhaus. Um, sure, the front man usually gets the attention. The lead singer is the face of the band. So I can see why that could be said really about many bands. But of all of the songwriters in Bauhaus, only one of them wrote a book about it, and it was not Peter Murphy. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you look at the liner notes for any of the Bauhaus albums, you'll see that everyone is equally depicted. There's not all Peter Murphy and then the rest of the band in the mm-hmm. background. They're, they're all very equally presented. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting and it is unique. So I do agree with David J uh, just in general, but it's funny, I'm sure he was really making that about Bauhaus and mm-hmm. I tend to disagree mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, interesting and liner notes, Gosh, we don't really have liner notes anymore with the stream, streaming industry, but that's a really great way to like get really educated on the song and who built the song and put it together. So yeah, that's I, I don't remember at what point in time he made that statement or if he was like disgruntled or something, but that's interesting. You mentioned liner notes and I'm sitting in your office and I see Love and Rockets, it looks like handwritten lyrics. I see a lithograph and I see autographs. What am I looking at right now? (laughs) Okay, so the first thing you're looking at is a lithograph of a Daniel Ash painting that he did back when he was in art school. Mm -hmm. And the two pictures to the right of that are handwritten lyrics, handwritten by Daniel Ash to All In My Mind. And they all say to Lou with love. And those were set, they came together. Daniel Ash was selling his art, and then you could you could pick any of the art, and then you could pick any song as long as it was one that he wrote the lyrics to, and uh-huh. he would handwrite them. Uh-huh. And so that is a set that was that Lou purchased. And then next to that is the album cover for Earth, Sun, Moon, signed by the whole band. It's a prized possession right there. So is Lou equally a diehard fan, or were these gifts to you? Lou is equally a diehard fan. We love that. We named our dog after a Peter Murphy album. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. she's right here. I love her. So th- this segues to another question I have. Um, after Bauhaus split up, Love and Rockets seemed to have eclipsed Bauhaus for a bit, and and Peter Murphy, his solo career also seemed to outshine Bauhaus. Why do you think both projects were so much more successful? Like not versus one another, Love and Rockets versus Peter Murphy, but why do you think they were so much more successful than Bauhaus? I think a lot of that is really the musicianship that they gained. They just became more accomplished musicians. And then also, I mentioned earlier about Peter Murphy's lyrics. I just think he is such an incredible lyricist. Mm -hmm. And I don't think when Bauhaus first started, he had grown to that level yet. I just think it happened over time with maturity. Mm -hmm. And so I really think that that's primarily what it is, Um, just being able to express themselves that much more musically, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maybe being more comfortable with themselves as well. So I kind of want to ask a similar question about songwriting, but about Joy Division. So how do you think New Order was able to shine more than Joy Division, given that they were kind of missing their front man there? I think that New Order was a new creation. I don't think that they were trying to be Joy Division. I think they created a brand new sound. I think that's the only way they would have it. Mm I know it was important to all of them to be able to honor Ian Curtis. So I think that New Order, they just were ready to take a 180 Mm -hmm. from where they had Mm -hmm. been with Joy Division. And... (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) And so I think that just looking at their band in a completely new light... Mm -hmm gave them the ability to just be completely different. But as I was mentioning earlier about production, I think that also makes a big difference because New Order definitely had a a total different level of production in the studio. Mm -hmm. 
Out of all like the Bauhaus offshoot projects, what's your favorite and why? It is so hard to pick a favorite, isn't it? For a long time, I would say Love and Rockets. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I would say Peter Murphy solo. For a long time, I would say <laughs> Daniel Ash solo. It depends on mm -hmm. so many different things. But I have different times and places I like to listen to these various artists. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about just some fond memories you have listening to them? Yes, absolutely. The first time I heard Peter Murphy solo, I still very much remember it. Love Hysteria had just come out and I was in my friend's car and she had a cassette and those first notes of All Night Long came on and I'm just going, what was that? This is just so amazing. And she said, this is Peter Murphy and I wasn't familiar with him by name. I of course knew who he was, but not by name. Mm -hmm. And so we listened to the entire tape and it was amazing. It had just come out and I then made the connection. Oh, that's Peter Murphy from Bauhaus. Mm -hmm. So I just very much remember that whole experience and how it made me feel. And I also have some really fond memories much later on uh, when Lou and I first started dating, we would ride around on his motorcycle and we would listen to Express. Mm -hmm. And that is still the CD that he always has in his bike. Mm -hmm. And what could be more Daniel Ash mm -hmm. than a motorcycle, right? So mm -hmm. it's really quite perfect. But yeah, just a lot of fond memories riding around on the motorcycle with Lou listening to Express. Aww. And oh, I did want to mention my dear friend Julie, Lady Noir, and I started a live stream during the, the Twitch live stream era and we called it of lilies and remains mm. which is a reference to an obscure uh, Bauhaus song mm -hmm. and I've always thought that title was very clever when you did that I remember watching those thank yeah. you we started every episode with a Bauhaus song we just liked how that set the tone oh. for the stream we did all the lighting as Bauhaus would, all just white lights, tried to create a lot of shadows, just tried to get that whole Bauhaus aesthetic. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, very cool. I wanna talk about that though. I wanna talk about dance floor selections and you as a DJ. For many of these bands, all, all the bands we're talking about today, what are some of your favorite hits to spin on the dance floor? You know, it's funny because I find Love and Rockets and Tones on Tail very difficult to spin for the dance floor, with the exception of Haunted and Go. Um, there's another Love and Rocket song that quite a few people want to hear, but I don't like it, so I don't play it. <laughs> I will say, though, that I love to spin Love and Rockets. I just find it difficult for a dance floor. So the moment I have a DJ gig where there's not a dance floor, I play so much Love and Rockets, mm -hmm. mostly from Express, but um, like An American Dream, Yin and Yang is a favorite. I love that song so much. But I'll also go back to their first album and play Dog End Day, Gone By. I love that song. The drums are incredible. I want to kind of talk about anthems. A lot of people in like the post-punk, dark wave, goth, like people into that music would probably cite Joy Division and Bauhaus as like founding fathers of goth music. How do you think they were able to make that impact and have that legacy when they were all around for just a couple years? Well, I think that they were so different from everything else that was out there. And there also wasn't the sheer quantity of music and bands that we have today. So I just think that people were really looking for something mm -hmm. a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And it was just so refreshing and exciting. I mean, I think about how I felt when I heard those first Peter Murphy notes mm -hmm. of All Night Long, and mm -hmm. that must have been very similar to what people felt when they first heard Joy Division or Bauhaus. And it was just so much more, in my opinion, heartfelt than a lot of other music that had been around. Mm -hmm. I mean, even still today, so you and I were talking offline, we were just chit-chatting with text about how we, about Joy Division and New Order, I love both. There's a time and a place for each. Like, I don't listen to New Order for the moving lyrics, but I don't listen to Joy Division for like the electronic beats. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, 
there's something about Joy Division and Bauhaus. It's it's old, but it's timeless still. And I think that just it has something to do with what the lyrics they're singing are very human, regardless of when the music was produced. For me, when it comes to God stuff, there's like there's the aesthetic, but I really pay close attention to lyrics and. <laughs> Those deep <Yeah>. cuts. <laughs> For sure. You know what else I really appreciate about, especially about Love and Rockets, and we could say the same about Bauhaus and Joy Division, is the song structure. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, not everything that they did was verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was kind of nice and maybe part of why it was so refreshing for a lot of people mm -hmm. was something maybe a little bit less traditional mm -hmm. and not always in 4-4 time. And mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, my last question, I saw that Daniel Ash announced Tones on Tail is going to be at Cruel World Fest. So Love and Rockets was at Cruel World last year. I believe Bauhaus was there the year prior. So Bauhaus in 2022. Uh, Love and Rockets 2023, and then Tones on Tail 2024. Do you have plans to go to Cruel World this year? Well, I would if I wasn't going to be headed to Germany. Why are you going to Germany? I'm going to Germany to see VNV and Diary of Dreams play in Berlin with a Philharmonic. Oh. And then we're going to WGT in Leipzig after that. Oh my goodness. That's a great reason to miss Tones on Tail. Yeah. But for sure, I would definitely be going to Cruel World. Um, I would say not just for Tones on Tail, but Placebo is a favorite of mine. I love mm -hmm. them. I've seen them many times. Newman, Ministry, I mean, so many others. It's, it's mm -hmm. a great lineup. Yes. Yeah. Um, I would say, though, that I would be a little bit more disappointed to not see Tones on Tail if it was going to be their original lineup. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they're going to be fantastic. But, you know, get Glenn Campling is no longer in the band. And he was a Bauhaus roadie and tech back mm. in the day. And he, of course, became the bass player. And But I understand that he's provided his blessing mm. for his replacement, Diva Domke, and that's Kevin Haskins' 36-year-old daughter. Mm. And so that lineup is essentially Pop Tone, mm -hmm. who I've seen a couple of times, Same. and they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a great show. Mm -hmm. We're so spoiled to have so much choice, um, but Germany, I, that, that sounds great. I know VNV, VNV is on tour, but I mean, yeah, Berlin. Berlin is like mecca for people into like industrial or industrial techno and really anything dark, right? Yes, I can't wait. I've not been to Berlin. I've been to Germany, but not Berlin. I've never been to Berlin or Germany. Oh, that's, you're gonna have the best time. Super excited. And you're probably gonna come back with a lot of good music. I'm sure we'll do a lot of record shopping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, DJ Kari has a residency at Club Ascension every fourth Saturday at the Moreau. Kari, where else can we catch you for your um, DJ mixes and your sets? Where can people find that stuff? Well, you can go to my website. It's niebell.com, N-I-E-B-E-L-L.com. And I always post everything that I play, including links to my mix cloud. And you can even listen directly right there. I have widgets for every set. And I always link to all the bands because the whole reason I put that website together is to help people find the bands so they can go download their music. Awesome. Thank you. Thank so you. everyone, follow up with DJ Kari. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. I can think of a better guest. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You're listening to Trinity Radio.